Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. Welcome to the very last discussion of the substantive law that's examinable in the exam for this intake. After this discussion, we'll just have a revision class for two hours that will go through a past paper that's being the subject of live participation, and I'll also record it and make it available just to round off this podcast. In today's discussion, we just have to finish up the provisions of the civil procedure rules in the Supreme Court, and we've got a disparate list um, starting with Order 42 and ending with Order 62, And as mentioned, they're quite a diverse bunch, which we'll just bring to an end. And we'll start with subpoenas under Order 42. There's two orders that relate to subpoenas, and they are Order 42 and 42A. Order 42 relates to subpoenas just simpliciter, and then Order 42A is subpoenas for production to the prothonotary. So once I've gone through the provisions, then we can compare the two. Now, um, starting with Rule 42.02, these are simple subpoenas and allow the court in any proceeding by subpoena to order the recipient, known as the addressee under these rules, to attend to give evidence or to produce the subpoena and any document or thing as directed by the subpoena or to do both. So it's to testify or to produce documents or both. Under 42.02, the prothonotary can't issue a subpoena if the court's made an order or there's a rule of the court indicating that the proposed subpoena not be issued or not be issued without leave or requiring the production of a document or thing which is already in the custody of the court or another court. And the way that it works is that the party will uh, attempt to issue the subpoena 42.023, the prothonotary then seals the issued subpoena uh, with the seal of the court or otherwise uh, authenticate it properly, a sufficient number of copies of the subpoena for service on the recipient and proof of service. And then it's the party's responsibility to arrange for service. Rule 42.03 prescribes form, and this is very straightforward. Form 42A is a subpoena to attend, Form 42B is a subpoena to produce, and Form 42C is essentially a subpoena for both. And a subpoena is addressed to one person only. As you may be aware from practice, the subpoena identifies the addressee either by name or description of office or position. So it's entirely appropriate for a subpoena to be addressed to the relevant officer of records, for instance. See Rule 42.03 as far as particulars, such as um, the subpoena to produce must identify the document or thing to be produced and specify the date, time and place for production, and a subpoena to attend specifies the date, time and place for attendance which could be the date of trial or it could be any other date as ordered by the court. And as you also may be aware from practice, 42.038, the last date for service of a subpoena, you need to serve more than five clear days before the earliest date on which the addressee is required to comply with the subpoena unless short service is permitted. So the time limits are strict. 42.03.1 permits alteration of date for attendance or production. 
And 42.04, the court has capacity either under its own motion or on application of a party or any person having a sufficient interest to set aside a subpoena in whole or in part or grant other relief. And the most commonly invoked ground to justify the setting aside of a subpoena is the lack of legitimate forensic purpose in issuing the subpoena in the first place. All right, so that's issuing. We then move on to service 42.05. It must be served personally. And as soon as practicable, the issuing party must serve a copy of a subpoena to produce on each other party as soon as the subpoena has been served on the addressee. So first it goes to the addressee, then it goes to the other party. 42.06 relates to compliance with subpoena. Conduct money is necessary. And if conduct money has not been given, then there's no need for compliance. 42.01 defines conduct money to mean a sum of money or its equivalent, such as prepaid travel, to meet the reasonable expenses of the addressee of attending court as required by the subpoena and returning after so attending. So conduct money isn't the costs of the person for compliance. It is the uh, expenses associated with delivery. 42.062, if it hasn't been served in time, then the addressee need not comply. And in relation to personal service, relating back to an earlier rule, 42.063, so despite 42.051, even if an addressee hasn't been served personally, if the addressee has by the last day of service actual knowledge of the subpoena and its requirements, then they must comply. The effect of the subpoena is that the addressee must attend at the date, time and place specified for production, including an amended date if necessary, and produce the subpoena or a copy of it and the document or thing to the court. And you'll see the alternatives. Copies may be produced and a copy of a document may be a photocopy or the document may be provided in electronic form. Now, having regard to the rest of the provisions, this relates to the prerequisites for service and uh, issuing and service and the need for compliance. Under 42.09, if an addressee produces a document or thing as required, the personatory then informs the party if requested in writing of a party where the production has occurred and a description is offered of the document and thing produced. 42.093, note please, no person may inspect a document or thing produced unless the court has granted leave and the inspection is in accordance with that leave. So on that basis, there needs to be the court's involvement in the release and there are capacities in 42.09 um, in subrule 4 and following for objections to be taken. 42.10 relates to disposal of documents and things produced and note 42.11 costs and expenses of compliance. So this is the last postscript after service money. The court may order the issuing party to pay the amount of any reasonable loss or expense incurred in complying with the subpoena. Note consequences if a person fails to comply with the subpoena under 42.12. A failure to comply with the subpoena without lawful excuse is a contempt of court and the addressee may be dealt with accordingly. Now, you may wonder um, whether there is an overlap between discovery, which we've looked at previously, and subpoenas. 
And the short answer is no, they serve different functions. So you may remember that discovery relates to a party and it relates to documents and the ambit of discovery is as prescribed. So a subpoena may be used on a party and it may relate, for instance, to matters that aren't discovered, aren't um, covered by discovery obligations because they, for instance, don't fall into the definition of a document or a subpoena can be used against a non-party. Discovery would attach to a party, including um, to identify a party as we've discussed in certain circumstances, but then a subpoena can be used on a non-party. Now let's turn our attention to 42A, and this is a, um, the rule that relates to a subpoena uh, to produce to the prothonotary. Now, before we begin, we need to look at the difference between this, the subpoena rules that we've just looked at, which are general, which allow for attendance to the court or the production of documents. But the linchpin of 42 was that it was a produced to the court. Now, under 42A, this relates specifically to subpoena for production to the personatory of the court. And 42A compels a person to produce documents to the prothonotary for inspection by the parties. Now, in the show notes, I'll link to the explanation published by the Supreme Court as to the difference. But the focus of Order 42A is that it can be used as an alternative to a subpoena to produce under Order 42, where the issuing party wants to inspect subpoenaed records prior to the trial of proceeding. So the upshot of 42A is that the documents are produced to the prothonotary, avoids some of the formalities associated with Order 42. Now, you can have a read of these provisions. I won't go through them particularly closely. You'll see the similarities and differences. Note the application under 42A.01. It applies where a party who has a solicitor in the proceeding seeks to require a person, not a party, to produce any document for evidence before the hearing of the interlocutory or other application in the proceeding or the trial of the proceeding. Now, have a look at the rules, 42A.02. The subpoena requires the addressee to produce to the prothonotary the document identified in the subpoena. So there's not a 42A analogue which allows for a subpoena to attend. It's in form 42AA. 42A.04 obliges the subpoena to be served personally on the addressee and then it needs to be served on each other party with an affidavit of service filed with the court. And 42A.05 indicates that the addressee then complies with the subpoena under 42A by producing the document to the prothonotary by delivering it or sending it. And it must, if it's sent, then it must be received by the prothonotary on or before the day specified in the subpoena. Like with Order 42, the documents don't need to be originals in order uh, to be compliant with the subpoena. And you'll see in 42A.053 how copies of documents can be provided to the prothonotary. 42A.07 preserves the capacity of the addressee or a person having a sufficient interest other than a party to raise objection and sets out the procedure, um, which is by objecting in writing to the prothonotary. And C42A.08, which indicates further the procedure to be followed as to articulation of what the basis is for objecting to production. 
If there is an objection, 42A.09, the prothonotary then refers the subpoena to the judge of the court or an associate judge for hearing and determination of the objection. So 42A is intended to be that streamlined process and allows essentially for uh, administration of perhaps uncontroversial subpoenas to produce with 42 reserved for those contentious matters that need to go back before the court. And if there's anything contentious about a 42A subpoena, it does go either to the judge or the associate judge. 42A.10, if there's no objection, then essentially parties make an appointment with the prothonotary and then they inspect and take copies of the documents. And it's each party. So there's always been an element of buyer beware in relation to subpoenas in that once a document is produced pursuant to subpoena, it's available to both parties. So essentially there are no surprises in these matters. So if you issue a subpoena and it produces a document or other thing that's adverse to your case that the other party will become aware of it fairly early. Now, Order 43 is the next examinable order. It relates to affidavits and it prescribes the form in which affidavits must be compliant. 42.03, sorry, 43.01, an affidavit is made in first person. It starts, as you may be aware from practice, with the place of residence of the deponents and their occupation. It denotes that the deponent is a party to the proceeding or employed by a party if that is the case. Essentially, an affidavit is divided into paragraphs, numbers consecutively, and the prescription under 43.01 is that each paragraph should deal with one topic. So each paragraph being as far as possible confined to a distinct portion of the subject. Then affidavits are signed by the deponent and a jurat is completed with each page of the affidavit being signed by the person before whom it is sworn. And the person who takes the affidavit, a person before whom the affidavit is sworn, then denotes their name and address and the, the capacity in which they have sworn or affirmed the affidavit at the end of the affidavit. 43.02 relates to the specific situation of an affidavit by an illiterate or blind person. And 43.02.1 relates to an affidavit where an interpreter is required. 43.03 prescribes that an affidavit generally is confined to facts which the deponent is able to state from their own knowledge. There's an exception which is on an interlocutory application. So that can contain a statement of fact based on information and belief. And of course, that would need to be set out. So knowledge is one thing, but information or belief is something different. And um, generally, if the deponent is setting out a matter from information or belief, that needs to be set out separately. 43.04 relates to affidavits by two or more deponents. And 43.05 relates to alterations, and they generally are required to be initialed by the person uh, before whom it is sworn. 43.06 documents uh, referred to in an affidavit. They don't need to be annexed. They may be referred to as an exhibit. So if exhibits, documents are to be exhibited to a document, you'll see 43.06 they're identified by separate certificates to annexed to the affidavit. They bear the same heading as the affidavit. They're signed by the person before whom the affidavit is sworn. 
Next, 43.09, filing if an affidavit has not been filed or has been filed but has not been served, then generally it can't be used by the party by or on whose behalf it is made unless the court otherwise orders. So in the ordinary course, after an affidavit is sworn, it's then filed and served entirely as you would expect. The next examinable order is Order 44. So each of these are, are rather short uh, and confined. Order 44 is the civil equivalent to expert evidence. So here you need to cross-reference with a number of other areas um, that we've looked at. Part 4.6 of the Civil Procedure Act, as well as the principles in relation to the admissibility of expert evidence. So Order 44, this relates to this situation and, and the language of the Evidence Act is picked up here entirely where an expert is called, meaning a person who has specialised knowledge based on the person's training, study or experience. It applies to a proceeding however commenced. So it could be by writ, it could be a writ by originating motion. Next is report of expert 44.03 requires that unless otherwise ordered a party who intends at trial to reduce expert evidence shall, as soon as practicable after the engagement of the expert, before the expert makes a report, provide the expert with a copy of the code meaning the expert witness code of conduct in form 44A and no later than 30 days before the day fixed for trial, serve on each other party a report by the expert in accordance with clause three of that code and deliver a copy for the use of the court. Rule 44.033 relates to supplementary reports. And the prescription is under um, sub rule four, a report provided by the expert shall be signed by the expert and it must be accompanied by clear copies of any photographs, plans, calculations, analyses, measurements, survey reports or other extrinsic matter to which the report refers. So essentially, when it comes to expert evidence, my suggestion has always been to make sure that each of the areas of your notes, which relates to expert evidence, and you'll remember that there are at least three that we've discussed being evidence and then uh, the Civil Procedure Act, as well as the rules, should be tabbed and linked together so that you can have them all at your fingertips should you need them. 40.4.05, a party shall not, except in cross-examination, adduce any evidence from a person as an expert at the trial of a proceeding unless the substance of the evidence is contained within a report which has been served. The exceptions are with a leave of the court or by consent of the parties or cross-examination. So in evidence in chief, a party is very much confined to the ambit of what's set out in, in the report. Rule 44.06 allows the court to direct expert witnesses to confer and to provide the court with a joint report specifying matters agreed and matters not agreed and the reasons for their not agreeing. So you might think that that links closely to some of the provisions contained in Part 4.6 of the Civil Procedure Act, which related to similar subject matter. The next examinable order is Order 45, which is originating motion. So though you might think that writs are a more attractive vehicle for examination in the exam because they then lead to each of the other steps that we've discussed, 
Of course, that doesn't preclude matters being commenced by originating motion. So Order 45 governs that area. Um, You can have a look at the provisions of that order, which will be provided in the notes. We move on to Order 46, and in relation to Order 46, there we deal with applications, and so this harmonises interlocutory or other applications. You've looked at a number of interlocutory applications, and now's the time ahead of security for costs, which we're getting to in a moment. So order for security of costs. The interlocutory applications that we have looked at while we've discussed the rules included applications for freezing orders and applications for injunctions and also security for costs to come. So if such an interlocutory application is raised in the circumstances of the bar exam, it's order 46 that governs centrally the procedure for those orders. So 46.02 If it's on notice and each of the applications that we've looked at um, so far, including the freezing order and injunctions, could be made either on notice or ex parte. But if it's on notice, it shall be by summons unless the court otherwise orders. And that needs to be done in accordance with Rule 46.04, which we're not quite at yet, but we will be in a moment. And 46.03, on the hearing of any application, so this may include ex parte, the court may order that the person making the application then give notice of it to any person having a sufficient interest. So that could include the other party. It could include a third party that has sufficient interest. And here is the heart of Order 46, 46.04. A summons is in Form 46A. It's filed if application is made to a judge of the court or the cost court with the prothonotary or if it's made to the associate judge with the appropriate of the associate judge or the prothonotary. Then once the summons is filed, a sufficient number of copies of the summons for service and proof of service are sealed with the seal of the court and 46.05 then governs service to the person affected. So the applicant shall serve a sealed copy of a summons and a copy of any affidavit in support on every person to whom notice of the application is to be given. It needs to be made within a reasonable time before the day of hearing named in the summons and no later than 2pm on the previous day. 46.05.1 relates to the day of hearing. Now, 46.05.1 sub rule 1 relates to a summons which has not been served, so that can be amended, and a summons is not amended more than once. And 46.06 permits the adjournment of the hearing on any terms that the court thinks fit. See the rest of the order for the balance of provisions, including setting aside or varying the order where the person has not attended. We only have three orders remaining. I'm just carefully working through to make sure that I'm not missing anything. Order 47 relates to place of trial and the general rule under 47.01, unless the court otherwise orders, the place of the proceeding is determined in accordance with Rule 5.08 which you may remember from memory order five was not in the reading guide, but rule 5.08 requires a writ to be endorsed with a statement of the place and mode of trial desired. 
if the writ's not endorsed with a statement as to place of trial, the plaintiff shall be taken to desire trial in Melbourne. If the writ's not endorsed with a statement as to mode of trial, the plaintiff shall be taken to desire trial without a jury. So the default positions, 5.082, are Melbourne and judge alone. But the obligation is on the plaintiff to endorse the, the writ with the statement of the place and mode of trial, particularly if the default is not sought, such as in a regional court, such as by trial by jury. Rule 47.02 relates to mode of trial. Now, subrule 1 relates to a proceeding commenced by writ and founded on contract or tort. That is to be tried by a jury if the plaintiff in the writ or the defendant by notice in writing to the plaintiff and to the prothonotary within 10 days after the last appearance signifies that that party desires to have the proceeding tried by the jury and the prescribed fees under the Juries Act are paid. But any other proceeding shall be tried without a jury unless the court otherwise orders. And the court can direct trial without a jury, even if the election has been made under 47.021, if in the court's opinion, the proceeding should not in all the circumstances be tried before a jury. And for those who practice in crime, you may be interested to hear that under Rule 47.02, the jury uh, number in a, a, a civil trial is of six, a jury of six and not of 12 or any other number. 47.03 relates to payment of jury fees and the procedure and quantum of that. And 47.04 permits the court to order a separate trial of any question in the proceeding. So before or, at the, or after the trial of the proceeding or different questions be tried at different times in play and places. So it's not necessarily the case that everything will proceed in a single trial. 47.05 relates to judgment after determination of preliminary question. And that's the situation where a question in the proceeding, which is tried separately from the, from the proceeding, substantially disposes of the proceeding or renders the trial of the proceeding unnecessary, empowers the court then to dismiss the proceeding or to make other such order or give such judgment as it thinks fit. So that concludes Order 47. We're now up to Order 49, which relates to trial. Now, this empowers the court to give directions as to the order of evidence and addresses and generally as to the conduct of the trial. And to give it context, we're dealing here, of course, with a substantially different milieu than in criminal trials, given the default position of trial by judge alone. And so the judge retains that broad discretion as to procedure. 49.012 includes directions to be given whether the burden of proof on any question lies with the plaintiff. In such a case, the plaintiff shall begin. And if the burden of proof on all of the questions lies on the defendant, the defendant shall begin. See the balance of the rule in relation to the various contingencies that arise with a simple trial between one plaintiff and one defendant without any counterclaim. Usually then the order of evidence and addresses is provided by the paragraphs of the rule that follow, which will be set out in the notes. And in any other case, the order of evidence and addresses is provided by those paragraphs that follow with modifications as the nature of the case requires. 
And so that sets out the order of events, of course, subject to the court's capacity to vary. 49.02 relates to the procedure that governs the situation where a trial is called on and any party is absent. So essentially the trial can be adjourned or the, the trial can proceed and it depends on the circumstances of the case. 49.03 allows a broad capacity to adjourn, uh, for the court to adjourn a trial on such terms as it thinks fit. You might there anchor that provision back to the overarching purpose of the Civil Procedure Act. And 49.04 relates specifically to the scenario where a party dies before judgment is handed down. The very last examinable order is Order 62, and that rounds off the last of our interlocutory proceedings, and that is security for costs. Now, this situation permits, and, and I'll leave to one side um, the issue of whether it might be strategic or otherwise, the preconditions are set out in Rule 62.02. As it is an interlocutory application, those procedures would apply, including the one that we've discussed as to initiation by summons. The preconditions are these, 62.021. You require a plaintiff ordinarily resident out of Victoria and then the plaintiff being a corporation Proceeding by a plaintiff in another court for the same claim is pending. The address of the plaintiff is not stated or not stated correctly in the originating process. The plaintiff has changed the plaintiff's address after the commencement of the proceeding in order to avoid the consequences of the proceeding or under any act the court may require security for costs. The court may, on the application of the defendant, order that the plaintiff gives security for the costs of the defendant of the proceeding and order that the proceeding as against the defendant be stayed until the security is given. Note, please, 62.022, the court won't require the plaintiff to give security by reason only of paragraph 1D, which was the address of the plaintiff was not stated or not stated correctly in the plaintiff's originating process. If in failing to state their address or to state their correct address, they acted innocently and without intention to deceive. 62.03, if such an order is made, security shall be given in the manner and at the time the court directs. And 62.04, if a plaintiff fails to give the security required by an order, the court may dismiss the plaintiff's claim. 62.05, exactly as you'd expect, the court can set aside or vary any order requiring a plaintiff to give security for costs. And that's a fairly short order in the scheme of things for what is potentially a very damaging order in that for many plaintiffs, including even persons of some sophistication and means, the idea of providing security for the defendant's costs prior to the commencement of litigation or in the course of commencement of litigation, but particularly prior to trial, would be very expensive indeed. Though this is a short discussion, we are now at the happy point where there's no other examinable material to address. So that was the last of a long list of specific and examinable provisions and context. I thank you very much for your attendance and your participation, and I look forward to seeing many of you in person in our review class, which, as mentioned, will also be recorded. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.